What if my plan doesn't work? Doesn't it seem like everyone has advice on how to plan for your future? Not the future, yours. Your aunt read an article about this industry, which is sure to be hiring. Your dad knows a guy you should absolutely meet. Your professor wants you to check out this graduate school. Your roommate already has a job lined up and now has infinite amount of job-seeking wisdom to share. Today's episode of Podcast Meets Purpose acknowledges that while plans are great, plans can also fall apart. Plans make us feel safe, but plans can also evolve as we experience more of the world. Whether you're a fierce planner, a free spirit, or just freaking out, you're in the right place. Hello, everyone. As usual, you've got me, Thais Carter, but with a slightly huskier voice. And me, Allie DeVries. So, Allie, thank you for doing the intro and sparing me. Um, If you all hear any slurping during the recording of this episode, it's because I have a cup of hot tea next to me, so you can bear with us. Uh, The demands of podcast recording will not make room for my sickness. Um, But before we get into today's interviews, Allie and I wanted to talk a little bit about kind of what it means uh, to plan for your future. And so I think a good place to start is, Allie, what planning persona are you? So if we're thinking about (laughs) if I'm a fierce planner, a free spirit, or freaking out, um, I would say that historically, I really identified with the freaking out part of the personas. <laughs> That's really been more categorically where I'm at. <laughs> How about you, Taze? Uh, I am definitely a fierce planner um, who have managed to let go of certain portions of my life, big picture uh, in my old age, but instead cling <laughs> ever more fiercely to the smaller aspects of my life. And so anyone who's ever been in my house and seen the big chalkboard calendar in my kitchen you know that I haven't completely let go. <laughs> Definitely. I can see that. Um, I think in terms of, of freaking out, there's there's the fluidity part of it, right? right? So it's like somewhere between free spirit and freaking out, where yes. I'm definitely like flowing between a lot of different ideas, but then having periodic freakouts yes. about what that means. Yes. So what has your fierce planner persona kind of looked like in terms of college to now? Yeah, well, for a long time, it meant a lot of five-year plans Mm -hmm. um, and having a really clear sense that, like, this is the job that I want to have. And for the longest time, uh, I think on earlier episodes, I've talked about being heavily influenced by Lois Lane and feeling like journalism was my path uh, and I will not deviate. And I think needing to be open to the ways that that kind of shifted into storytelling more broadly when I wasn't doing traditional journalism, but trade journalism. And then when journalism shifted into marketing and then when marketing shifted into kind of events uh, and that's kind of shifted now into helping students tell their stories about who they want to be in the world. And so I think allowing some of my natural skills to take me in a direction where kind of journalism was the first iteration of my call to storytelling. Um, But being able to recognize the ways that that has changed. And I think um, the call has broadened. Uh, And so how I can like plan around that, I think has shifted considerably. So still like trying to control certain bits, um, but being a little bit more open to kind of what that looks like. So I went through a lot of different stages of what I thought I wanted to be when I grew up um, when I was little. And I think there was a 
a pretty intense marine biology phase, spent lots of time at the Shedd Aquarium, <laughs> and then eventually got into the slightly longer um, astrophysics stage of my life. I was going to say, Astronomer Alley is my favorite <laughs> alternative version of you. It's true. So up until probably shortly before I started college, I was pretty set on going into astrophysics um, and becoming an astronomer, and then realized how much math was involved, and that it was much more about calculations and a lot less about the stars. staring at the stars and wonder. Um, I came into college as an exploratory major, and I think throughout um, college, even after settling on international service and French majors, was still kind of pulling from a lot of different disciplines um, and was never really settled into any particular issue or area of focus. I just wanted to learn everything. And so then kind of had a hard time figuring out how to put these pieces together. Um, so I was interested in a lot of different social issues related to international service, now global service. Um, I loved studying French and wasn't sure how that fit into the mix, but had this really meaningful experience studying abroad and interning with a nonprofit over there. Um, and then had these TESOL courses where I was learning how to teach English and was really getting into linguistics and teaching English. So my natural path kind of took me to um, this teaching assistantship program in France after I graduated. And I taught English uh, for kindergarten to third grade classes in a small town uh, in France. And it made perfect sense within my trajectory that, of course, I'm a French major, took TESOL classes. This makes a lot of sense. And then I got into the program and really about halfway through realized that even though I really excelled at teaching in the classroom, I was using my French, I was using my TESOL preparation and doing quite well in terms of teaching my classes, I wasn't fulfilled by it. It wasn't mm -hmm. what I expected it to be. It wasn't, um, I didn't feel like I was making as much of an impact or building the relationships I had hoped to. And so it really showed me that maybe I don't want to teach English long term and maybe mm -hmm. I don't want to live in France forever. <laughs> and so really had to kind of reevaluate what my priorities were in terms of thinking about a career and even coming back to the States, what my immediate next step was. Even. Right. Well, I think part of what I really appreciate about your story and that resonates with components of my own experience is that a lot of times you feel either pushed or pulled towards a certain type of job because of something you're good at. So you're good at teaching and you're good at working with kids and you're good at speaking French. So you find yourself in the space that lines up with all these things that you're really good at. Mm -hmm. But it's not always the things that we're really good at that are the things that we end up doing or loving to do and I think like similarly like I'm a really good writer and I can like do marketing stuff like all day long but the ways in which like those skills are being used in a corporate context weren't quite getting me where I wanted to be in terms of how I thought about organizing my life and my work um and so I think like one of the things that we can talk a little bit about before we kick it to the interviews is when you're kind of caught between these things and you know that here are these things that you're good at and so everybody's pushing you to do that kind of work or you feel like, you know, oh, maybe I should be doing this or this is a plan that makes sense. Um, how can students and even people who have already graduated, like what are some strategies or things that we would recommend for people who are wondering how do I plan well or how do I cope when like my plan goes off the rails? Exactly. And I think that, you know, we joke about it in the intro, but really talking 
with your networks, your peers, your your mentors, your family, that those are all really vital and important people in your life. Um, but then also kind of taking that with a grain of salt, that they're seeing part of you and recognizing and affirming different gifts within you. Um, but then you need to take some time for reflection for yourself and understand that your, your gifts and your education and career preparation and all of that can come together in a lot of ways, a lot of different um, jobs throughout your life. And that's a good thing. That's okay. And I think that looking back, there are always these threads. I think even now I see these threads of mm-hmm. education and teaching and mentoring and talking about service that, you know, are through lines, but didn't look like it at the time. Being able to hear from the people in your life and take some time to kind of understand that and think through that. And then just knowing that there are a lot of options um, and that your, your call, your career will look a lot of different ways throughout your life. Yeah. I was reading a few different things in preparation for today's recording and it one of it was a quote from something and sorry friends I'm blanking on where exactly it came from. Um, but they were talking about the difference between planning and steering. And planning manifests itself as something that is really rigid, that this is the plan, this is how things are gonna go. Whereas steering is kind of like, you're on the ship, you know you're headed in a direction. And so you're able to kind of turn, but there is also the sense that the wind is gonna take you where the wind is gonna take you. And the speed might be different um, depending on the current. And so thinking about steering versus planning allows for some flexibility in how you think about whether or not your plan, quote unquote, succeeded. And if it's less about a plan and more about a direction with purpose, um, then that actually creates some healthy mental space uh, for you. So it's not necessarily needing to check off like these five things or these two boxes, um, but instead it's about kind of moving in a certain direction with purpose. And then however the specifics and the particularities of that end up looking, you don't necessarily have to be disappointed that something went differently than you thought it was going to go. And so I think that you know, anytime we are giving advice, we can talk, talk, talk. Uh, but I think it's best uh, to learn from hearing other people's stories. Don't just take our word for it. Um, and we have two alumni featured today, uh, Steve Lehman, who was here this fall um, as part of Pathways to Purpose, and then Pam Fickenshire, who was here this fall as part of the Wangren Preaching Series. Um, both of them add really valuable layers to the conversation. And so with that, let's get into the interviews. This fall, we hosted Steve Lehman, a Valpo mechanical engineering major who graduated in 2009. Today, he's the assistant director of the University of Chicago Innovation Fund, an early stage fund dedicated to the commercialization of research and technology generated at the university. His path to this very interesting work was by no means a straight line. In fact, I think Steve lived through every graduate's worst nightmare. A post-graduation job was offered, then fell through, leaving his well-laid plans pretty well scrapped. Rather than me tell the story, let's jump into the conversation. Stephen Lehman, fall of 2008. Oh. You're just back from fall break. Okay. Are you thinking about your future? Are you freaking out? Fall of 2008. Yeah. Yes, I'm freaking <laughs> out. Yeah, I'm freaking out. Um, particularly for me, because I had no idea what discipline I wanted to go into. When mm-hmm. I came into Valpo, I had thought, well... I'm either going to be a pastor or I'm going to be some sort of engineer mm-hmm. without really knowing what an engineer was or what that meant. And I feel like I still didn't really know the answer to that after a number of years mm-hmm. um, being at Valpo. 
And at that point, I was still kind of on the fence, I think. I, was think, I think I was shifting more towards engineering. Mm-hmm. But what kind of engineer do you want to be? Mm-hmm. Um, but there was still a part of me that was thinking, Steve, maybe you will be a pastor. Mm-hmm. Maybe you will go into seminary um, and working through those things. Are there ways that you think kind of the Valpo way of doing things, and I think because, as we've talked about at different points today, that there is this emphasis at Valpo about wanting students to graduate not just as good professionals, but as good people. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ways that that's messier, mm-hmm. um, but yep. as somebody who now is kind of on the other side of that, are there things that you appreciate appreciate about that process now that you know, you're kind of in the working world, kind of doing the thing, totally. are there ways that you look back and it's like, oh, like I'm really glad that as confusing or you know not quite knowing what discipline I wanted, like can you appreciate that in a different way now? Yep, yep. Uh, going back to that sort of 2008 freak out question, for me, um, I was, I was obsessed with this decision of, or with this question of how do you make a, the right decision, mm-hmm. right? How do you know what you're called to do? How do I know, you know, what type of career I should be going into? Because I don't, really don't feel like I necessarily fit mm-hmm. into any of these. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, growing up in some evangelical Christian circles, they're sort of, well, you can find God's will. And if mm-hmm. you pray for God's, if you pray for him to reveal it to you, mm-hmm. he's going to line it up for you and give you the specifics. Mm-hmm. And, um, I had a voice like that from growing up, just one voice, but that was pretty loud. And I'm thinking, oh, how do I get into the center of God's will, all this kind of stuff? And I was um, very quickly disabused of that idea at Christ College um, by great professors who sort of, um, I remember the, the first book that we read, which is still the most important book that I've read in all of my intellectual formation, um, was Aristotle's Ethics. Mm-hmm. And it's about how... Um, making good decisions, um, living the good life, capital G in both senses. How do you determine what is the good and what is the bad? It's less about having a formula. Mm-hmm. It's less about trotting out proofs. You know, I'm an engineer. I really love to say, okay, here are the premises and how do I move from them to, you know, the, the right number right. that I'm in a circle and hand to my professor. Um, but actually, the, the way that you determine what the good is for you and just in general is to be good. Mm-hmm. And to be good is to be shaped in a particular way. Right. Um, that's like the central um, the, the central idea of virtue ethics, yeah. to be a virtuous person. Yeah. And um, yeah, that was, that was, for me, a critical thing that was passed on to me by Valpo and that's shaped who I've become. Um, and it, like you're saying, is it messy? Oh my gosh, it's so much more messy. Um, you could go to Princeton, <laughs> you could go to, you know, wherever, and it's, you know, yeah. okay, you know, I'm going to go from X, I'm going to become an investment banker, then right. I'm going to go and, you know, right. get my MBA, whatever, like a lot of my classmates did. Um, and, you know, it's formulaic, it's safe, mm-hmm. but to me it's less interesting and you never really get into the core questions. What is good? Um, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is one of those things where I think sometimes it can be really easy to like, let's say, look at someone's like LinkedIn page yep. and you can see a list of all of these things that they've oh, yeah. done, but you kind of miss the narrative of kind right. of how they got there. And so, you know, for example, you do have an MBA uh, from mm-hmm. Notre Dame and like, and so these things together mm-hmm. are impressive, but how you got to your MBA, yep. like that path I think is really different than when we talk about people who graduate from Ivy League institutions and like sure. your natural next step is either law school or business school. Right. Um, so how did you determine 
kind of the process by which deciding an MBA was the next right move for you? Like sure. what took you from here to kind of that point? Oh my word. So can I go into some of the, the yes. details of the story? Yeah. I mean, so for me it was, um, I was starting off 2009, getting ready to graduate or I guess, yeah, to, sorry, fall of 2008, getting ready to graduate in 2009 mm -hmm. and, um, lined up a job with Caterpillar and Caterpillar mm -hmm. said, Steve, sorry, the economy's tanking. Mm -hmm. Um, we're laying off a ton of folks, right? So this is back where my should I be a pastor kind of right, part right. came in. And I decided, oh, well, you know what? I'm going to take a gap year. And I went to Oxford to study theology for a year. How, well, that was my plan, right? Mm -hmm. um, it didn't go according to plan. So I got to Oxford and and for the next actually year had the, was in the deepest depression that anybody could experience. Mm -hmm. um, Definitely not on my LinkedIn, right? Yeah. Um, and I shouldn't say the deepest depression anybody could experience. It was a deep depression. Yeah. Um, and it cut short my time at Oxford. And I came back and had to pick up the pieces and figure out what I was going to do. Well, the first thing you need to do is get to work. Mm -hmm. You know, that's my dad right there. Mm -hmm. Thank God. Um, so I got a job as an engineer to pay the bills. And I wasn't, I was excited about it. When I got into the nuts and bolts of the job, didn't love it. Mm -hmm. And so I spent the next year really discerning who am I mm -hmm. and what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. And I had a lot of baggage from growing up thinking about sort of, you know, work sucks and then you die. Mm -hmm. um, and um, just not a lot of, there weren't a lot of options in my mind about what a person could do. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like through a year of prayer and discernment um, in that job right after Valpo, I was able to shift and I really felt the hand of God shifting me in a different direction. Mm -hmm. And it shifted me into the humanitarian sector mm -hmm. um, for a little bit of wandering in the desert, frankly, yeah. um, where I went to DC and I took a six month fellowship um, and was gonna go to Notre Dame that next year. I ended up staying in DC for 18 months and kind of cobbled together a number of either non or very low paying jobs in the humanitarian sector. Mm -hmm. um, my, and thinking about, okay, how do I connect my skill set and my passions for what I know I'm called to do, mm -hmm. which is to work with those who are on the margins, right. who are really vulnerable. Right. And um, yeah, I, I got shifted in that direction. But there was a point where I saw that um, people in the humanitarian sector don't have engineering degrees mm -hmm. or a background like mine. And the people who are hiring for the roles that I want to have they don't like my background. Mm -hmm. And so I got to go and do something else to figure out how I can weasel my way into this. Mm -hmm. And that's where I went to Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, an MBA is a really good fit for that sort of thing. A little bit of a reboot. There are a lot, especially in full-time MBA programs mm -hmm. where you can say, okay, um, I've wandered a little bit and I've gathered a bunch of experiences and now I can, I'm, I want to kind of reframe and start over. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what I use Notre Dame for. Excellent. Now, one of the things that I think is always helpful is, you know, as you're kind of figuring these things out, were there either kind of examples of people who were doing the kind of work you wanted to be doing or people who were approaching their work, even if it was different from your mm. work, in a way that you're like, I want to feel that way sure. about going to work in the morning. Sure. Um, are there folks who stand out for you as either kind of one example or the other that you yeah. really kind of look to during that time? Yeah, yeah. Um, they're kind of odd examples, but okay. one of them, um, so... Probably one of the key things that set me in the direction where I'm going is Engineers Without Borders mm -hmm. here at Valpo. And 
you know, providentially, I think. I, I, got, I wasn't actually very involved and ended up getting on a trip in 2008 um, uh, because there was some election violence and a bunch of kids dropped out. I kind of weaseled my way in and went on the trip. I'm forgetting if it was in the summer or if it was during spring break. Um, anyway, we went to visit this uh, group of missionaries, uh, Gene and Melba Morden, mm-hmm. who had spent maybe 10 years at that point, I think maybe more, in the desert, mm-hmm. actually the center of the sub-Saharan African drought um, in northern Turkana. And their mission was to bring water and bring the gospel to nomadic, a traditionally nomadic people, the Turkana. Um, and yeah, we spent 10 days with them, and it was enough to totally change my perspective on what, again, what the good life looks like. Mm-hmm. They so clearly were living the good life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was in a shack in the middle of the desert in northern Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was appealing. It was really appealing. And I think I went back to, and frankly, I still go back to that example, and I think about, like, what was it about how they were living and where they were living and what they were doing and their approach that made it what it was? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think ultimately it was about subordinating themselves to the needs of others, Mm -hmm. subordinating my desires to the actual needs that other people have. Mm -hmm. And where am I positioned? And what skills do I have? And what kind of community do I find myself in? Mm -hmm. And that's what they did. And they lived simply. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. You know, it's interesting because we keep coming back to this idea of the good life. And I think that we're kind of living in a moment where I don't know whether it's because of parents or because of society or what it is, but I feel like we end up having so many conversations with students where I think the word that I would probably use for it is like tension, Mm -hmm. Um, like tension between doing work that they need to do in order to um, be responsible to kind of where they come from or, or people who are part of where they come from. So, you know, whether that's like, I'm going to have a lot of student debt. I like can't afford to do this thing that's like interesting and exciting to me because I have to pay that off. Or, you know, I have like, I take care of my mom and like, I need to be able to make money to pay rent. Um, And so one of the things that we've really kind of challenged ourselves with internally at the Institute is trying to figure out how to take this pursuit of the good life, whatever that might look like and make that accessible to students who feel like they are living in the tension of like Mm -hmm. responsibility versus like being able to pursue something that feels more kind of like off the beaten path or not part of like a traditional way of thinking about success. Sure. Um, And so are there any kind of like words of wisdom or like just ways of thinking about it to kind of help make that concept of the good life feel like something that is within reach Mm -hmm. for like students who are kind of coming from, um, kind of a position either like financially or in terms of family expectations where they feel like they just have a much more limited set of options. Yep. Yeah. I mean, so the first thing for me is to, to remember the goal of life is to, well, maybe not, but if you're trying to live the good life, it's about living the good life, not necessarily having a good career. Mm -hmm. Your career is part of your life. Um, and it doesn't have to be good at all times. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be the source of meaning in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put the weight of meaning in your life on your vocation, mm-hmm. that can be crushing. It can crush your vocation. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important to think about the other institutions that you belong to, mm-hmm. the family that, you've, that you're in. That's so much more important than your career. Um, for me, my church is much more important than my career. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I invest a lot more of my heart into that. Even I have a, a career right now where I feel like I'm in the bullseye. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still would say my church life is more important than my work life, mm-hmm. even though it's less time. Um, second, um, I can only speak from the, ex- the two experiences where I've really felt this acutely. One was when I was in this engineering job and feel- and depressed and mm-hmm. not knowing where to go. Um, I started thinking about, okay, how do I move in a different direction mm-hmm. with the time that I do have? Mm-hmm. And what I did there is I said, well, I'm interested in working with the most vulnerable. Maybe I can take a class on international economics or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so I just enrolled as a, uh, as a graduate student for one class here at VU mm-hmm. in a class on international economics. And that was a way where I was able to almost like graft in yeah. this like latent desire that I had into the everyday um, realities of having to work this engineering job and get better with my depression. Um, And so that's what I did there. Um, Similarly, when I graduated from um, Notre Dame, I ended up in a job that was really crushing, Mm -hmm. very toxic environment. And um, what I did there is I said, okay, first I'm going to sort of bucketize off. This is my work. Um, again, it doesn't have to be everything. I don't need to get all my meaning from my work, but here's what I'm going to get. I'm going to make enough money so I can afford whatever the next thing is. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm going to get a set of experiences that I can parlay into whatever the next thing is. Right. Right. And then I'm going to sit tight and I'm going to wait until the next thing happens. And then not only that on the side with whatever other time I had, Mm -hmm. um, I'll do something else. And that's where I started another company. And I just said, you know what, I want to work, again, I, want, I don't have an avenue to work with vulnerable people or to do what felt like to me as something that matters. Mm-hmm. So I started a company and that's where, that's really where Threadies came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so one of the things that I think is so interesting about your story and specifically the work that you're doing at the University of Chicago now with kind of being kind of the venture capital person helping to um, take all these ideas and like provide some of the initial financial support to make them kind of turn into reality is that I think so many students are so obsessed with needing to have like the most specific kind of degree Mm -hmm. or like in some cases double and triple majoring in a way of like okay I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this and in some ways like you've kind of ended up in the space where like you know, you didn't major in neuroscience or microbiomes or oncology or mm-hmm. like any of the other things that you work on. Yeah, right. And yet, like, you are able to be kind of part of these meaningful conversations. And so, I guess, like, make the case for being a generalist. Um, yeah. Or, like, how has this kind of expressed itself in the work that you're doing now? And, like, how can we help kind of take some of the, uh, the pressure off people who feel like they have to be, like, experts in all the things? Right, right. I mean, you'll hear this from so many professors, but what matters the most is that you know how to think. Mm -hmm. Um, They talk about that at the engineering college all the time. Um, Engineering school teaches you how to think. Christ College taught me how to think. Mm -hmm. I always say uh, to anybody where this comes up, um, in my career, what was more valuable, your engineering education or your humanities education? Mm And of course, the Vogue answer is technical, STEM, what mm-hmm. have you. And that was super valuable. Mm-hmm. But much more valuable was the general humanities education that I got. Mm-hmm. And because it teaches you how to think about ideas, mm-hmm. how to put things into context, how to make good decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, and most importantly, um, how to sort of tap into your curiosity. Mm-hmm. For me, 
that's been a critical um, path in my career mm-hmm. is um, maintaining curiosity about a number of things and using that energy to go not as deep as a neuroscientist, but to learn enough about neuroscience where I can actually have a conversation with the neuroscientist, which is what I need to do in my core job. Um, And yeah, I'm a mechanical engineering major who's working in VC. Mm -hmm. Almost all the people in VC have similar pathways though. Um, And it's true in so many different careers. It's really um, get good experience and know how to think and work hard, and don't be worried about the specifics of the degree that you're going after. That's what I think. Well, one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about is, um, I think like, when we hear about things like investment, I think we think about like kind of these big investment firms, and I think one of the things that has been really interesting about the different kinds of things that you get to be part of is the different kind of social impact component. And not Mm -hmm. just, you know, with your work at UFC, but, you know, even with Threadies and the other things that you've been a part of, how important for you has been kind of like working with the end in mind and, and thinking about the end, like kind of the end user mm-hmm. um, or like the core audience or customer? Um, mm-hmm. How present is kind of that person in your mind and going about your different kinds of work? All the time. Yeah. When I was at Notre Dame, I thought um, I was going to go into one of two careers. I was either going to go in back into the team humanitarian sector mm-hmm. in sort of a management administration type role or I was gonna go into impact investing, Mm -hmm. which is investing in startups that are working in the humanitarian sector directly. Um, Because I think in some ways my perspective was a little bit limited Mm -hmm. by what is impact Mm -hmm. first. Um, And I, and, but because really I did, I was was oriented on how do you solve problems, real problems, Mm -hmm. not the surface level problems that it seems like Silicon Valley is zeroed in on all yeah. ridiculous things that are coming out all the time and wasting so much of our energy as a society. Mm-hmm. But how do you solve real problems? And can we orient minds and technologies and ideas towards those particular problems? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, over time, I think I became less obsessed with the idea of being under the quote unquote, like social impact umbrella mm-hmm. only because, um, and again, this goes back to Valpo, um, I th- and particularly uh, uh, the senior seminar we did at, at Christ College, thinking about what is vocation and what is good work. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do good work that is humanitarian in almost any context. Mm-hmm. You could work for Caterpillar f- with a humanitarian mindset. Yep. Um, it just depends on where, how you're orienting yourself. Are you what? things are you thinking about? What's filling your moral imagination? Mm -hmm. Um, It is absolutely a humanitarian enterprise to think about how I can optimize engine components in this larger machine that's building houses or providing energy or the millions of other things that engineers are working on just because, you know, that's the discipline that I came from. Um, I think it can be damaging if we focus too much on these specific monikers. If you have impact careers mm-hmm. and you have other careers that are just career careers. Right. Almost everything that you can do can be done under this aegis of social impact. Mm-hmm. It just depends on the orientation of your heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be fair, there are things that you could not do. Um, there are things that I would, that I would cross off, you know, sure. I would be uncomfortable working in definitely in a number of sectors, but you know, barring some like moral, 
fail, failure or some like viciousness of an industry. Mm-hmm. I think any industry, orient yourself towards the good and towards others. Mm-hmm. And that's where you're gonna, yeah, yeah, fulfill that inner desire. Before we dive in, just a little bit of background on Pam. A guest of the Walter Wanger and Jr. Celebration of Excellence in Preaching series, hosted by Valpo's Chapel of the Resurrection, Reverend Pam Fickenshire is the senior pastor at St. John Lutheran Church in Northfield, Minnesota. An ordained parish pastor in the ELCA since 1997, she received her MDiv from Vanderbilt Divinity School. Pam was the founding pastor of Spirit Garage, one of the first emergent church startups designed to reach younger generations. Enough for me, let's get to our conversation with Pam. Well, so I'm curious. So you were a German major, um, but talking about being kind of a fourth generation kind of Lutheran pastor, I feel like sometimes there are people who, well, you know, my parent was a pastor, my grandparent was a pastor. I never want to be a pastor versus others who really see it as like the family business. Um, So at what point did you start to think that going into ministry was something that was right for you? I think I had some inklings of it maybe early on in my Valpo years, but I grew up Missouri Synod. I had really zero experience with women in ministry. It wasn't until I came to Valpo that I saw some like female faculty members doing chapel talks that I saw women doing that kind of um, role. Mm-hmm. Um, and even then, you know, Sunday morning at that point in Valpo's history, women were not preaching in the chapel on Sunday right. morning. So I didn't have a lot of firsthand experience, even though I knew that in theory that there were women who were ordained. <laughs> I mean, it was something I knew existed, but uh-huh. I didn't have any personal experience with. Uh, once I got to Valpo, um, I discovered that I really liked hanging out with people in the deaconess program and people who were pre-ministry. And I think it is true that if you really don't know what you want to do with your life, just look around and think about who are the people that you most enjoy being with um, Mm -hmm. and what do they do? And Mm -hmm. chances are good that that's a sign of, you know, where you might be happy in your own work life. And I, I, so I started to have that inkling while I was here. Um, But I also uh, loved languages. I had studied French all through high school and then took up German at the end of high school and then Kind of pursued both of those at Valpo as a French minor, German major, and um, really loved the process of translating and things like that. And um, so I kind of really felt like I needed to kind of go down that route and see where that led. And I spent my junior year in Germany mm-hmm. and got back from that and sort of reached the conclusion that I didn't love German literature enough to pursue graduate studies in it, and I wasn't sure I really wanted to teach high school. Uh, I took a few more classes in areas of study that I hadn't taken before. My dad just turned to me and said, you're really good at languages. You love to write. You love to read. You're enjoying theology. Why don't you just consider seminary? And it was the first time he had sort of directly said that to me. And I'm not sure if he held back before because of the whole women in ministry piece and Mm -hmm. worrying as my dad that that would be hard for me Mm -hmm. or whether he just didn't want to be too directive but so I went from there to from graduating to a year in Lutheran Volunteer Corps Mm -hmm. um, because I also had a lot of interest in social justice kind of things and also thought well maybe social work is maybe where I'm headed Mm -hmm. Um, and after that year it 
kind of solidified for me this sense of, no, I, I feel like I'm being called to serve the church. Um, mm-hmm. The church is my kind of my first love. Um, and I need to do that by going to seminary. So yeah, yeah. that's really cool. Um, I also think that it's interesting kind of in pulling different threads within your story in taking the year to do LVC that it's interesting because I think you see it much more with women here on campus than with men. But this idea that if I want to serve people, that social work or some sort of helping profession mm-hmm. is the way that I'm going to do that before they consider ministry in kind of whatever form that might take um which is really interesting and so um i'm sure that there will be a lot of different students who are also participants in our church vocation um program who are going to be able to come hear you on sunday but i'm curious that you know for those who don't get the chance to interact with you are there things that you feel like you've learned about kind of how to discern whether your call to serve is something that manifests in kind of a practical serving profession like social work, education, health profession, something like that, versus um, kind of this more pastoral, kind of ministry-based way of doing that. Is there something, like, what was it that clicked for you that, like, social work wasn't wasn't the thing, wasn't the path? When I was in Lutheran Volunteer Corps, I, so I was working for a large uh, Second Harvest Food Bank. So there was a big sort of administrative side to that work, and also access to a lot of different social agencies, everything from really small, um, really small church-based food kitchens to really, really large feeding programs and homeless shelters. But I think for me where the real satisfaction and sense of calling comes is in being able to sort of tell the story and Mm -hmm. to connect stories of who people are and how God's working in their lives and um, you know, and in the church, you get to connect that with the biblical story, yeah. and and it's that kind of integrative, yeah, work of telling the story and trying to trying to make sense of it all. Yeah, intellectually, that's what really fires me. Why don't we talk about Spirit Garage? Okay, uh, because I am I'm so excited to kind of hear about what you were thinking about in founding this as kind of a way of doing church. Because I think, you know, kind of across the board, so there's there are kind of two aspects of the story that I want to get at. One is I think that there is sometimes this fear with kind of students, young people, even, you know, people late into their kind of like 40s, 50s, 60s of this idea that like, I'm not the person who starts something. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, this kind of just sustainable uh, imposter syndrome. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. Like, I'm I'm not ready. I can't do that. And so I want to talk a little bit about how kind of independent of it being kind of a church, finding that within yourself to start something yeah. um, and kind of how that was named for you, how you were able to kind of embrace that. Uh, and then the second piece being that when the time came to do church, to like be the person in charge, that this is the way you wanted to do it and kind of talk about why this way in this place. So let's start with the getting to the point of deciding like, I'm, I'm capable of this. I am going to do this. What is, what did you need to kind of do internal work or, you know, external work (laughs) to feel like, yes, I can be somebody who founds a place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is my starting spirit garage is definitely one of those cases where the calling did sort of come from outside me. It mm-hmm. was not me sitting around going, 
what kind of church do I want to see in the world? And I know I'm going to go do that and find Mm -hmm. somebody to support it. It actually really was the reverse, Mm -hmm. um, which I think often happens, right? You don't necessarily imagine the thing first, but somebody or some circumstance comes to you and then uh, you find yourself thinking, oh, well, maybe this is what all that has been leading to. So Mm -hmm. in my case, it was I had... um, I'd done this internship in urban ministry. I was pretty sure I wanted to do ministry in a city. Um, I imagined going to a congregation probably a lot like my internship church, which was this, you know, struggling inner city congregation in Jersey City, New Jersey that was multicultural, but, you know, really struggling financially and trying to figure out how to let go of some of its traditions in order to welcome new people from the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. That whole typical story. So in the meantime, I ended up moving to the Twin Cities and thought, well, this is a a good place for me to be temporarily. I had friends in the area. I could live with somebody. I got Mm -hmm. a temporary job. And in the meantime, tried to just get to know some people in the area and people doing urban ministry and Mm -hmm. started talking to other pastors and synod staffs and just sort of said, you know, I'm in this holding pattern, but if you hear of anything, let me know. And lo and behold, out of one of those relationships, somebody called up and said, so there's this church in Minneapolis that is looking at starting a new ministry to young adults. They've just asked us to help identify some people, and would you be interested in talking to them? Mm -hmm. And so I met with the pastors of this congregation, and they kind of laid out a very squishy vision for um, reaching young adults in Uptown, you know, which started from everything from like, well, maybe we'll put some couches in this room in the basement and invite people to watch Friends on Thursday night, you know, and start building relationships. This this is the 90s, right? Um, You know, but then they eventually, um, but they were really challenged. They also were challenged from the outside as a congregation to Mm -hmm. do this. Mm -hmm. Um, It hadn't been their initial idea that this would be their big initiative. They were all focused on children, youth, and families. They did really, really good, typical high school youth ministry Mm -hmm. in this congregation. They already did that well. But it was a Luther Seminary youth ministry prof who said to them, there are 20,000 young adults right outside your door and yeah. nobody is really thinking about that cohort right now. Right. What are you going to do? And so they took that calling to heart and then they began casting about for somebody to do it. And at the time, very, at the time, this sort of entrepreneurial emergent church, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to go start my own thing was really unheard of. Yeah. And they could, hardly find a seminary that would talk to them because yeah. people thought that, that you know. And yeah. the larger church didn't generally support people doing this right out of the gate out of seminary. Sure. They wanted folks to get some experience first. And that's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Podcast Meets Purpose, brought to you by the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University. We hope you check out our past episodes and stay tuned for all of the great conversations to come this semester. We'd like to recognize the outstanding work of our producer, Felicia Iskandon. Our intro theme is by Hook Sounds Music. You can stay connected to the Institute by liking us on Facebook, following us on Instagram, or subscribing to our YouTube channel. Thanks. Thanks.